Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. So this is from 144,000 Harps, The Hidden Songs of Israel. And this is from chapter 9. And the title of chapter 9 is, Upon the Rose, as in a flower, Upon the Rose of the Harp. And in this particular chapter, because remember, each of the chapters in the book I'll feature one Torah portion. Because what I'm trying to demonstrate to people, if they don't yet appreciate how important these Torah portions are, I'm giving you very vivid examples of why they're important. And that hopefully they're motivational. So, yeah, if I'm not doing the Torah portions, I definitely need to start doing that. This chapter is special because I pulled in three Torah portions. Bamidbar, which is in the wilderness. It's the book we're just finishing up with Matot and Maseh, and then specifically Matot. And then we're also, uh, again, still in the, the book of Bamidbar, not just the Torah portion, the book of Bamidbar. And if you don't know what Bamidbar is, it's the book of numbers in English. Back up a few Torah portions here, and we go back to Balak, which is the destroyer. And that's what I want you to pay attention to with these Torah portions because I'm showing you a, a little trick, uh, a little a cheater way to figure out what's going on in a biblical text. Because uh, this is something I have my students do. Uh, I think the last time we did the full Torah portion cycle, is I would have them write a little summary of what was in each Torah portion. And those become your reference cards. And so if you read something somewhere else in the Bible and you come up with a topic, you can go back to your Torah portion, and that way you can find the proto-prophecy of whatever it is you're trying to understand. For instance, let's say you're reading about the beast and the serpent in the book of Revelation. You say, hmm, well, what Torah portion could I go to? Well, you can go right back to Bereshit. You can go back to the first chapters of Genesis because you have the serpent, which is the most cunning beast of the field. Easy peasy, right? <laughs> there is a little bit of information in between Genesis and, and Revelation, but that shows you that's the process I use. Uh, I use the Torah portions as my reference, my proto-prophecies to help me decode any other part of scripture. And so in this particular case, we've got the Torah portion Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. Well, we also know that in Revelation, the woman goes into the wilderness. So does that other woman. So there's probably something in the wilderness in that Torah portion that's going to clue me in as to the dynamics of why these two women go into the wilderness in the book of Revelation. Also in the book of Revelation, we have these 12 tribes. They're renamed. And then the number of the 144,000, it gives the names of those tribes. If I want to understand more about those 144,000, then I go back to the Torah portion named tribes, Matot, right? And then we have the destroyer. Obviously, we, we have the beast, we have the serpent, and they're, they're doing their best to destroy. If I want to find more about the destroyer in Revelation, where do I go? I go to Balak, the Torah portion Balak, which means destroyer. And all through these Torah portions, again, they're in the, the book of Numbers. We'll start from there. So it says there are 144,000 reasons to read the, each Torah portion. And this triple treat of Torah portions, both the details of the portion as well as its overall story, will link Revelation readers to a foundation within it. In fact, since the revelation in Judaism is the revelation at Mount Sinai, in the words of the Torah, it makes sense that John's last revelation will be rooted in its words. For instance, John's revelation includes specific details of the 12 tribes of Israel, both as receiving a new song and as being the very substance of the holy city. 
In addition, John describes various destroyers as beasts, the Antichrist, the false prophet, the dragon, and even those supernatural bugs of Abaddon. He describes the woman being carried in the wilderness to be nourished away from the presence of the serpent. If the reader wants to understand the foundations to these destroyers, tribes, and the wilderness in the end-time revelationary war, then he or she turns to Torah portions that highlight them. Bamidbar, Balak, Matot. What do they say? Wilderness, destroyer, and tribes. The hints in the book of Numbers, or Bamidbar, lend an additional seed prophecy for cross-reference. Bamidbar, in the wilderness, emphasizes the safeguarding of the Mishkan in the wilderness according to one's tribe. That should sound familiar to us. We've been talking about who is this that comes up from the wilderness. From this emphasis on safeguarding, whose Hebrew root is Shamar, the priests and Levites designated watches or terms of service in the Mishkan. The principle was later transferred to the temple. These watches of the Levites made up the 24 watches of the temple and the tabernacle. Likewise, 24 elders keep watch in heaven. The number of the watches, 24, is the number of 12 tribes times 2. Likewise, there are 24 elders in the book of Revelation, such as in Revelation 4. If Moses designated the watches according to the pattern in heaven, then 24 watches of the priesthood and Levites make sense. Earthly, heavenly. The Torah portion also emphasizes that the Levites represented the 12 tribes and their firstborn. So perhaps the 24 is representative of those. Revelation emphasizes the 144,000 as the first fruits from the earth. So the 12 tribes who had their own banners camped in four divisions, four directions from the tabernacle. Each divisional banner had a graphic of the four living creatures, lion, man, bull, and eagle. There are also four angels at each direction who can hold back the four winds, perhaps both natural and spiritual. For wind in Hebrew is ruach, also spirit. So here's Revelation 7, 1 through 4. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. The angels are assigned to the four corners of the earth, ready to execute judgments from heaven when they hear a shouted command. Likewise, the tribes camped on the four sides of the tabernacle, ready to move on command when the ark and the pillar of cloud moved. But Midbar's contents Describe the encampments of these tribes. If the reader wants to know more about the 144,000 warriors sealed from each tribe, then he or she turns to Bamidbar, the first portion in the book of Numbers, which numbers the armed men of the tribes. Now add the Torah portion, Matot, which means tribes, and Balak, which means destroyer, for the context of the 12,000 armed men among the tribes of Numbers 31. So here's what Numbers 31, 1 through 5 say. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take full vengeance for the sons of Israel and the Midianites. Afterward, you will be gathered to your people. Moses spoke to the people saying, arm men from among you for the war that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel, you shall send to war. So there were furnished from the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. Now, at this point, it doesn't sound like we've reached 144,000 yet. 
But what we do have is a thousand for each tribe. In the same way, you're, you're picking out an equal number in the book of Revelation. So we're, we're going to keep digging here because it's quite possible that part of what's going on in the book of Revelation is based on this pattern of Israel almost ready to go into the, the promised land. You, know, you got a generation that's died out in the wilderness. They're almost ready to go in. And here come the Midianite women. And then we get idolatry again. Right? So it, it bears watching to see if there's something in this Torah portion that's going to help us figure out what's going on with the 144,000. The reader is locating context for an equal number of combatants from each tribe, a number intensified in Revelation to 144,000, because he keeps his promises in thousands. Additionally, the context supplies another clue that makes sense when matched with the text in Revelation. The 12,000-man army of Numbers 31 is to take vengeance on Midian specifically for its sin of sending women to corrupt the Israelite men with eating things, sacrificed to idols, and adultery. That should ring a bell from our study. It was the false prophet Balaam who taught Balak and the Midianite women how to do this. Is there a false prophet in Revelation? See, I got to quit. I'm chasing rabbits here. So from Revelation 2.21, let's see if this sounds familiar. I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. If the reader wasn't sure there was a link between the army of 12,000 in the wilderness and the army of 144,000 in Revelation, then these direct references to Bilam, Balak, eating things sacrificed to idols and adultery, nail down the issue. The point of taking the woman Israel to the wilderness or the Midbar was to test her by nourishing her there with a type of food she'd never experienced before. Israel's test in the Midbar became the substance of Yeshua's answer to the destroyer who tempted him to make stones into bread. Yeshua said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. The word of Torah was what sustained Moses on Mount Sinai for two periods of 40 days and 40 nights. This word sustained Yeshua as well for 40 days and 40 nights. For he was a prophet like unto Moses in the word made flesh. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And then again, in Deuteronomy 8.16, in the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. All right, if we're in the wilderness of the peoples, people, then he has brought us into this wilderness of the peoples to feed us a manna, which our parents didn't know. Pretty interesting for people like us, right? We're out here and all of a sudden we're feeding on the Torah. Not that our parents didn't have some acquaintance with the Torah, they did, but they didn't necessarily just feed on it the way that we're feeding on it. So what is he doing with us out here in this wilderness of the people? The manna was the preparatory diet for entering the promised land. For how could one enter the land, work it, and preserve it as Adam was intended to do without developing a taste for the word and its nourishment from above? Joshua 5.12 says the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. 
The wilderness was when the Israelites walked in clouds of glory. Few realized why the Egyptian food and water was taken away. Egypt was a dry reed. It couldn't support them in their destination. What is often overlooked about the wilderness experience is that it was full of the instruction of the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh. Just as Yeshua promised his disciples that the Ruach HaKodesh would instruct them what to say, so the Ruach instructed the Israelites in the word through the manna and the water from heaven, Yeshua. Nehemiah 9.20 says, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth. And you gave them water for their thirst. So you see the similarity here between the good spirit and the manna and the water. Sadly, the instruction mostly did not fall on good soil. In the first wilderness generation, their children, though, followed Joshua into the promised land. What a great reminder to come into the kingdom like a little child. Another context for the 12,000-man army is the army of Edom, the red one, which was defeated by David and his captain, Joab, or Joab. Psalm 60, verse 1, says, For the choir director, according to the Shushan Edut, and Michtam of David, David, to teach. To teach. It's teaching us something. When he struggled with Aram Naharaim, and with the Aram Sobah, and Yoav returned and smote 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Right, That number 12,000 has popped up here. Plus, we've been studying Edom, right? The prophecies concerning the red beast, Edom. And right here, we hear something a little strange, that David actually fought and killed 12,000 from Edom. Edom is known in Jewish literature as the red one who will be defeated by Messiah. Perhaps it's no coincidence that the fifth assembly of Revelation is Sardis, which means red ones, <laughs> not a compliment. <laughs> this lends a more ominous tone to the Sardis warning, which was followed, uh, which followed the warning to Thyatira. Thyatira was an assembly that was leading the righteous astray because it encouraged them to eat things offered to idols, through the agency of the Jezebel woman. This is the exact sin of Midian. They led the Israelite ministry through adultery and idolatry, starting with the things offered at Baal Peor. So back to our song concerning the, the conquest of Edom, the red one. It says, oh God, you have rejected us. You have broken us. You've been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land quake. You have split it open, heal its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people experience hardship. You have given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. You have given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth, Selah, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. I will exult. I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkot. Gilead is mine, and Menasheh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter. Moab, okay, here it changed. Moab is my washbowl. <laughs> Over Edom, I shall throw my shoe. Shout loud, O Philistia, because of me. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not yourself, O God, rejected us? And will you not go forth with our armies, O God? O give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. Through God we shall do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down our adversaries. So this psalm, Psalm 60, began with a reference to the theme of 12,000, which is the defeat of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Edom is the red one, representing the soul, the nefesh, the bundle of appetites, emotions, and desires that war against the spirit of a man. It is what man has in common with a beast. The art scroll commentary on Psalm 60 helps the reader make the thematic connections among the encampment of the tribes. The 12,000 who defeated the Midianites to execute Adonai's revenge 
the selection of 12,000 from each tribe to total the representative number of all Israel, 144,000. So here's what the commentary to this particular psalm that prophesies of the defeat of Edom. Here's what the commentary says about Psalm 60. This psalm presents David's inspired vision of a universal order of nations united in complete harmony. This was his dream. The concept of universal peace is a manifestation of monotheism, the belief in one almighty God. Pagan mythology depicts a chaotic heaven torn asunder by jealous warring gods who are no more than an exaggerated reflection of their human creators. Struggle, conflict, polarization are basic elements of the idolater's world view. Have we ever been in a more polarized time in history than now? The Jew, who believes in one creator, believes that all of the diverse elements of this universe are basically united to serve the purposes of the one God who gives order to the world. Israel is at the center of this world order and the supreme tribunal of this nation, the great Sanhedrin, convenes in the temple, which is the spiritual center of the earth. Each of the 70 members of this body is symbolic of one of the world's 70 nations. And the 71st member, the chief justice, represents Israel, the nation which controls the order of all other peoples. So we've heard that before, how the encampment in the wilderness around the Mishkan represented those 12 tribes judging the nations from the 12 gates of Jerusalem. So this psalm records a rare time when David went on the offensive instead of the defensive in the war against Edom, who represented the nations. And like we've said, Edom now is scattered out. Those systems are implanted among the nations. The two entities he attacked had already broken pacts with him, Aram Naharaim and Aram Tzovah. According to the commentators, it was necessary for David to go on the offensive to subjugate the nations in order to prepare for universal peace, represented by his son Solomon's reign. It was in this messianic archetypal war that David and Yoav struck down 12,000 red ones. The psalm was to be played upon a Shushan Edut, um, a rose of testimony. And they believe this is possibly a harp that was shaped like a rose. Edut holds the Hebrew root. Aid, which forms so many vital words. Testimony, edut. Eternity, ad. Jewelry, adi. Witness, eda. Assembly, adat. Feast, moed. The rose must have been a very beautiful instrument. The English rendering of when he made war in the psalm, Bechatzoto against Aram Naharaim and Aram Tzavah has a double entendre, a poetic turn of phrase in Hebrew. Bechatzoto et Aram Naharaim ve'et Aram Tzavah. The roots of war and Tzavah are the same in Hebrew. As suggested by the Jewish sage Ibn Ezra, it means destroy. The wordplay is found in the statement that David destroyed the high place, Aram, a destroyer, and set it on fire. He destroyed the destroyer. Again, this is a messianic turn of phrase. Balak also means destroyer. David also destroyed Aram Naharaim, the high place of the rivers. This river is understood to be the Euphrates, which is also called the Great River. In Hebrew, it is the Parat River of Eden. The Midrash, Shochertov, suggests that David actually split this river so that it would not block his army when he attacked Aram. Revelation alludes to this drawing up of the Euphrates for the kings of the east to draw them into a final war of their destruction in Revelation 16, 12. Verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 60 mention two of the three components that comprise Israel, land, covenant, and people. The covenant is understood from its being played upon the Shushan Edut, the rose of the harp, the beautiful rose of the testimony. 
David records also the quaking of the land itself, along with the breaking of the people in his wrath. He begs mercy, return, and healing of the fragments. These earthquakes are also recorded in Revelation. Revelation 6, 12, 8, 5, 11, 13, 11, 19, 16, 18. David mentions that Israel was forced to drink benumbing wine. The commentators parse the Hebrew and conclude that this wine arouses the world to undo the burden of the Torah. And Revelation, a cup of wrath is also forced upon the world. It's Revelation 14.10 and 16.19. The world will likewise be shattered. The world is only considered to be united when Israel is recognized by all nations as the center of world affairs. For it says, Jacob is the bond of his estate. And that's from Deuteronomy 32.9. In other words, when Israel is united, then their job is to unite the nations. There is no such thing as a united nations before Israel is established and its tribal inheritance under Yeshua's reign. Verse 8 mentions dividing portions, which refers to enemy property, which would be a portion to the Jewish exiles returning from the diaspora. And in another reference to the nations, David calls it the Valley of Sukkot that will be measured out. And of course, Sukkot is the Feast of the Nations. It's also called Shechem, which is where Jacob, Jacob camped when he re-entered the land of Israel and he built Sukkot for his cattle. In Psalm 60, verse 9, Judah is my lawgiver, suggests that Judah will organize his return and the assigning of the inheritance, just as in Bamidbar, it is Judah who sets out first once the trumpets blow. This context of blowing trumpets also appears in Revelation, Revelation chapter 8. In Revelation, the 144,000, which again is 12,000 from each tribe, have defining characteristics. Revelation 14.3 says, they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. We can't say that for the frogs of the, the beast, can we? As with the numbering of the tribes for representation by the Levites and the redemption or purchasing of the firstborn, so the 144,000 is a representative number chosen as a first fruits, which is representative of the vast numbers who have not been defiled by Midianite women with food sacrificed to idols, adultery, or idolatry. In other words, if here's 144,000, it's telling you there's lots more behind them. This is representative. They are also true witnesses, having no lie which again recalls the rose of the testimony, a beautiful harp instrument to sing the truth. That's what a testimony is. It's going to be a testimony of truth. Revelation 14.1 says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, listen to this, like the sound of many waters. And like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. These many waters are found in Torah portion Balak, when Balaam involuntarily blesses the 12 tribes. He says in Exodus 24 5, he has numbers, How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out like gardens beside the river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from his buckets, and his seed will be by many waters. And his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. So there's our many waters in the destroyer's portion, Balak. And then now in the context of Matot or tribes, 
Moses tells the people to select armed men. This command to the tribes follows the annulment of vows. If one does not perform a vow, then he or she is a liar, (laughs) unless legally nullifying the words. That passage is preceded by a summary of the feasts, which are also designated in Revelation under the messages to the seven assemblies. All the themes are connected in Revelation. And if you're not sure how those seven assemblies connect to the seven feasts, you need Creation Gospel Workbook 1. Because that last section will will show you how each of those seven assemblies shows the characteristics of a particular feast. Revelation describes the 144,000 as men having the name of the Father written on their foreheads. The armed men were to be men of righteousness, and therefore they would be men who obeyed the commandment to hear O Israel. This is performed when Jewish males put tefillin on the arm and forehead for prayer each day. The parchments within the boxes of the tefillin contain the sacred name. How would you have the name on your forehead? Well, if you put on your tefillin, it's got the sacred name in there. The vengeance on Midian was for the spiritual and natural adultery, which is idolatry, committed by the men of Israel with the Midianites under Bilam's teaching. A righteous man, Pinchas, is dispatched to finish the job as he began spearing Cosby and Zimri and the act of idolatrous adultery. Now this makes sense. Numbers 25, 14. The name of the slain man of Israel who was slain with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of a father's household among the Simeonites. The name of the Midianite woman who was slain was Cosby, the daughter of Sur who was head of the people of a father's household in Midian. So Zimri was the Israelite man who cohabited with the adulterous Midianite woman. Zimri means melody, song. In Revelation, the 144,000 turn the tables with truth, and they sing a different tune with the Rose of the Testimony. Let's return to Revelation for additional clues to the Torah portion prophecies. Right? So, you're going to have to do math now. Are you ready to do math? <laughs> you, you might want to pen in a, a pencil for this part. Let's return to Revelation for additional clues. We see the list of tribes sealed in Revelation is missing the tribe of Don. Okay, that's your first fact. So it doesn't mean that Don is not there, by the way, because in the text, if, if we read the whole context, it says they're all there. But for some reason, remember, Don is is not going to be included in this list. And I think it goes back to it's going to be in the territory of Ephraim and Don, where Jeroboam sets up the golden calves and the alternate times of worship. And so you see Ephraim and Don removed from this list. And so Menashe goes back into the list. And then Ephraim is called the Joseph. Joseph. So it's not that these tribes are like, Oh my goodness, they're not there anymore. They are there. They are present. But when you see the, you know, the change in the list, don't be upset. It's it's teaching you a lesson based on which ones were selected for that list. So we've got the list of tribes that are sealed. Second fact. And the Torah portion Balak, we have elders who are commanded to kill adulterers. Elders who are commanded to kill adulterers. Now, how many did they end up doing? If we go to Rashi, who is the the primary commenter on the Torah text, he says that there were 78,000 elders and they had to kill two adulterers apiece. 78,000 elders and they had to kill two adulterers apiece. Next fact. (laughs) That's more of a commentary than a fact, but we'll see if it comes out right. If we go by the 78,000 elders from those tribes who killed two adulterers apiece, we come up with 156,000 who were killed for adultery in Balak. 156,000. But remember, we're missing a tribe. If we subtract the 12,000, 
who are missing. Now, see, the Ephraim is not truly missing. They're just called Joseph. It's Don's name that's eliminated. If we subtract the 12,000 who are missing from the tribe of Don in Revelation 7, 4 through 8, the remainder is 144,000. So we can see that when we're looking at the 144,000 in the book of Revelation, it's an awfully big coincidence that the numbers are going to line up with exactly what Rashi says of that Torah portion concerning how many were killed for idolatry, right? So now you have the, the righteous among the tribes of Israel going on the offensive like David did. Pinchas' action against Zimri and Cosby stopped the spreading plague or pestilence. Remember, after this, the people get really upset. And so then something else happens and a plague, a pestilence starts spreading among the camp. Revelation 2.21. Again, it takes us back to the context of the Torah portion. Balaam teaches Balak and the Midianite women how to seduce the Israelite men into adultery and idolatry. Revelation 2.21. I have a few things against you. Because you have, there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent. Again, it sounds exactly what's going on in the Torah portion. She does not want to repent of her immorality. He says, behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, exactly what happened in the Torah portion. I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. So John gives us more context clues. He links the teaching of Bilam with spiritual adultery, which Adonai equates with the works of Jezebel. The pestilence on the children is the proof of an adulterous woman who has violated her vows. Remember, that was in the context. Vows are in the context of matot, and it includes both men and women. If Elijah is one of the two witnesses with Moses, and I think we could make cases for different people being the two witnesses, or even different things being two witnesses. I think there's lots of, of types of the two witnesses in scripture, but let's just, let's ride with this one for now. If Elijah is one of the two witnesses with Moses in Revelation, now we have more context for the wilderness. We have this Bamidbar prophecy. We have first an oath or a vow. Second, spiritual adultery or those who have not defiled themselves with women. Three, the prophet Elijah, who according to tradition will designate who is a member of which tribe upon their return, possibly both to be assigned an inheritance in the land and as an army to take vengeance on Midian, Jezebel, Bilam, these uh, spiritual adulterers and idolaters. And I get that question sometimes. If we don't know what tribe we're from, or we don't think we're from a tribe, then where do we go at the end of days? When the, the property is, is being awarded, when the tribes are being settled in their land, how do I know where to go if I don't know who I am? Well, you know what? Most Jews don't know who they are either. <laughs> the, the Levites and the Kohanim have a little bit better idea of their lineage. But for the most part, um, after the destruction of the temple, lots of records were lost. Up until that time, Paul knows he's a Benjamite. Uh, Hannah, she knew she was from the tribe of Asher. But now most people wouldn't know whether they are or they aren't or which of what they are, they are. And so according to the tradition, you don't really have to worry about it. You don't have to know ahead of time. You know, you don't have to flash your credentials and say, I'm from the tribe of Naphtali. You know, it's that's not the way it's going to go. That's really out of your hands. Um, 
the walk that you have with Yeshua is what is in your hands. And that's what you arrive with. You arrive with your relationship with Yeshua. And then according to the tradition, the prophet Elijah is going to sort through us when it's time to be assigned a place. And of course, in Ezekiel, he says, if if they're not from a tribe, let them settle in whatever territory they want. Let them join. If you just feel like you're from Naphtali, <laughs> then go feel like Naphtali with the Naphtalites, right? Uh, probably most of Naphtali won't know who they were either. You know, you, you can get reacquainted with yourself at that point. But you're not going to be the, the only one who arrives not really knowing where you're supposed to be. It's like the first day of school. You might have a schedule in hand, but you have no idea where the English hall is. You have no idea where the math hall is. You have no idea where the cafeteria is. You have no idea how to get your locker open. We're all going to arrive not having any idea, most likely. And they say Elijah's job is going to be to, to sort this out. And he'll be able to tell you exactly where to go, which is good news. And that's also just another piece of trivia that Elijah is present at every circumcision, uh, at least every religious circumcision, not just random, but uh, if it's for the sake of fulfilling the Torah, then Elijah is present at every circumcision. And they say this is kind of his punishment because he thought he was the only one left in Israel when actually there were 7,000 others who had not bent the knee to Baal. And so now he has to pretty much count every circumcised boy <laughs> throughout the ages. Um, you know, whether he is or he isn't, it's, it's pretty impressive, though, that uh, in those places where you, you lacked a little bit of faith, he assigns you a job to build up that holy faith. And you can say, oh, yeah, there really are <laughs> lots of those who are going to be brought up in the commandments. And uh, I can only imagine he's numbering you know, and assigning the Israelites coming home when King Messiah takes the throne, maybe that's part of the, I don't know if we call that punishment, but maybe that's part of the, the re-education plan as well. Number all these folks, Elijah, you thought it was about over, but look at the numbers here coming home to take possession of the land. And then the, the fourth item is the wilderness or the mead bar as a place of escape. Okay. So now our tour through the Bible continues. Now Elijah is going to join the air quotes in the wilderness conversation. And first Kings 19, one through four, it says, now Ahab, are we interested in Ahab? Because he's married to Jezebel. Now Ahab told Jezebel, because remember Jezebel's Thyatira. All right. This is our big warning. If you don't fix this immorality, this uh, idolatry, that I'm going to throw you and your children onto a sickbed, which is truly interesting because the verse we've been working with in the Song of Songs, before we got into who is this coming up from the wilderness, remember she was on her bed seeking her beloved night after night. She couldn't find it. And the rabbis say this is in context, a sickbed. Something has happened. She has a relationship with the Holy One, but nevertheless, she she can't grasp him. There's something she's missing because she's on a sick bed. And it's not until she arises and goes about the city and begins to inquire that she's actually going to be able to find him. She has to get off that sick bed. She has to quit the immoral immorality and, and the spiritual adultery that's going on. So 1 Kings 19.1, it says, Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. These were false prophets, by the way. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. Queen Jezebel is angry that the false prophets have been killed. So she takes a vow, and King Ahab does not annul it. Did you catch that? Because we're looking at all the things in the Torah portions where we can find these connections 
to Revelation. Remember, one of those Torah portions, it had to do with the annulment of vows. And so Queen Jezebel makes a vow. I'm going to kill Elijah by this time tomorrow. Well, according to that Torah portion, if King Ahab had read the Torah portion, he would know he needs to speak up because she probably can't do this. If all her priests were defeated in a battle with Elijah, <laughs> then it's not likely she's going to be able to round up Elijah and have her way. But Ahab doesn't correct her. He doesn't nullify the vow. He doesn't overrule it. And because Jezebel cannot perform this vow, remember this is in Matut, this is in the tribes, because she cannot perform this vow, as a result, she dies. These gods she believed in were not so kind as to forgive a broken vow. So here is another revelation link. The iconic false prophet, such as Bilam, Elijah, the true prophet, goes to the wilderness expecting to die. Yet an angel prepares a place for him and nourishes him. What do we read in Revelation 12, 5? She gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman, remember this is Israel, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. So we have a little piece of a story here about Elijah that lends a little bit of insight into this passage in Revelation 12, 5. If we want to understand going into the wilderness, it might be because we're being pursued by Jezebel. You say, oh my goodness, what am I going to do if Jezebel's after me? Don't worry too much. Uh, <laughs> because that, that was a good news story. You know, uh, I'm sure it was terrifying for Elijah to be pursued down into the wilderness, but we don't have to be terrified. Here's the Jewish expectation of a ruler from Israel who will rule the nations. The birth of the child was vindication of the woman's faithfulness and fidelity to her vows to her husband. For the innocent woman who was tested in a vow brought forth healthy children, not the children to be killed by pestilence. In the wilderness, Elijah is told that there are 7,000 more like him who had not bent the knee to Baal. Revelation 12, 14 says the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Wow. So right here, we see another little piece of Elijah's story shedding light as we're trying to understand Revelation 11. Elijah represents righteous Israel being taken to the wilderness for protection and testing, just as Adonai took them before in Deuteronomy 34, 11. And Jeremiah 2, 2, like Jezebel, there is an adulterous woman in Revelation who is in league with a false prophet or a beast and a serpent. Revelation 17, 3, it says, he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names. Right. So that takes us back to Edom. Remember the the. That, that type of David defeating the 12,000 Edomites, the 12,000 red ones? Well, we have here the woman sitting on the scarlet beast. She's sitting on the red one, and he is full of blasphemous names. Edom is the red one. He's the scarlet beast. He is a king to be defeated by David's offspring, who will rule the nations and prepare an era of peace. So the scriptures present contrast and a choice. Is a believer aligned with apostate Israel whoring in the desert with idolatrous behaviors? Or is she righteous Israel hiding from evil, sealed in the Torah, 
and awaiting the trumpet call to war against the king of Edom, the red one, the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon. Both Israels go to the wilderness, but one will bear the fruit of righteousness, and the other will die with her idolatrous fruit. As we encamp in the wilderness, so shall our journey be to Sukkot and the kingdom. So that, that's chapter nine, again, of 144,000 harps. I don't know, just listening to it, I know you, you can process a different level of things by listening. But to me, this particular chapter, you would want to do both. You wouldn't want to just listen. You would want to go through here and go through all these scriptures. First thing you would want to do is, is go through those three Torah portions. You would want, because really I'm just like picking up a piece of each Torah portion and kind of weaving it into the chapter. But see, if you went back and you read the context of Bamidbar in the wilderness and the context of Matot or tribes and the context of Balak the destroyer, you could do the same thing I just did in this chapter. And so if you went back and you actually read the chapter and were able to look up these verses as you went through, I think it would really embed, not just in your mind, but in your heart, how vital and how many layers. Do you realize how, by just presenting these four portions, how many layers he builds in you of understanding before you ever reach the book of Revelation? I mean, at some point you realize, when I'm reading in the book of Revelation, I already have the pieces. Now, it feels like they're maybe assembled in a different order in the book of Revelation, like somebody shook them up in a can and then threw all the Torah portions out there on the table and said, put them back together. That's normal. Uh, but if you know the pieces are in the Torah portions, it's worth reading those Torah portions so that you can begin to put together all these different contexts that landed on the same table in John's vision. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.